Hey everybody and welcome to CEO Sitdowns where I, John Cannell, your host, have sit-down conversations with CEOs from all walks and all industries to hear their stories, pick their brains, and learn from their experience. On today's show, I am happy to welcome Jason Freed. Jason is the CEO of 37 Signals, the creators behind Basecamp, a top-notch software for project management, and hey, an email service that seeks to transform email into something you want to use, not something you're forced to deal with. In this episode, Jason and I covered a lot of territory. Naturally, we talked about his company and their phenomenal products, but we also discussed Jason's philosophy of work, the books he's written, Jason's relationship with Jeff Bezos, his thoughts on Elon's takeover of Twitter, and much more. In short, it's an episode you won't want to miss. So, without further ado, I invite you to pull up a chair and listen in to my conversation with Jason Freed. Hello, Jason. Welcome to the show. Happy to have you. Thanks for having me. You bet. This is a real treat and a true honor for me, so thank you. To get us started, though, Jason, why don't you just tell us your life story, if you will, in bullet points? You know, you were born and then what, and how'd you get where you are today? Well, briefly, because I don't like talking about myself, <laughs> really. Um, <clears throat> I'm from uh, Chicago and uh, grew up in the Chicago suburbs. Went to high school, was an average student, went to college, was an average student. Um, did a bunch of, had a bunch of interesting jobs when I was younger, but in college, um, I know I'm jumping over a bunch of things, but in college, um, I, uh, I came across the internet for the first time and, and I graduated college in 96. So about 95 is when the internet, like the commercial internet, the graphical internet with Mosaic, Netscape, the stuff hit for the first time. And I was enamored by it. I thought it was really interesting. Um, I've always loved design. I'd always loved business. I loved technology to some degree. Um, I'd been working on some software prior to that, but nothing on the web. And it just kind of captured me. And so I started doing website design. I started learning how to do website design, you know. Um, and so I did work for a few clients and um, found a few more clients and found a few more clients and kind of got into it. And um, when I graduated from school, um, I got a job as a creative director, website designer kind of person out in San Diego for a while, took that job for a bit. Realized a few months in that I wasn't really built to work for other people. It just wasn't my thing. So I moved back to Chicago. The guy was wonderful. Like the team was great, but like, eh, not, not for me. Moved back to Chicago, started my own freelance thing, ended up hooking up with a couple friends a few years later. And we started this company together uh, in 1999 called 37 Signals. And initially we were a web design company. Uh, and we started getting really busy and kind of popular and, and had too many projects to juggle and things were falling through the cracks and couldn't figure everything out ourselves and, and dropping balls and the whole thing. And so we ended up building um, some project management software for ourselves internally to use with our clients. And as we started using this thing and, and, and building it, our clients were saying, what, what is this thing like that you're using? This is really great. We could use this for our own projects. And so the light bulb sort of went on over your head, over our head, and we said, hey, Maybe there's a product here, turned it into a product. And then um, about a year or so later, it was generating more revenue for us than website design. So we stopped doing website design. I've been doing software ever since. And that's been been doing software for about 18 years, but the company's been around for about 23 years. And um, 
that's a pretty quick um, summary of basically how I got here professionally. I'm skipping over a bunch of personal details, but professionally, that's that's uh, that's how it all came to be. No, that's great. And one thing that has my curiosity peaked is how did you guys arrive at the name 37 Signals? Uh, that's admittedly unique. Where did that come from? One of my original business partners, uh, this, this guy named Carlos, um, he we didn't have a name for the business. It was three of us. It was me, Carlos, and Ernest. And we were trying to come up with a name. And um, Carlos was watching um, PBS. There was a show called Nova. It still is, I think, a science show. Um, and there was a segment on the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. So the SETI project, which is uh, a bunch of radio telescopes listening to signs of life from space. Um, and the story was at the time that out of the billions of signals that have been analyzed, there were 37 signals that were unexplained and signs of potential intelligent life or something that we didn't know what it was. And he just heard that phrase, 37 signals, and that 37, that is really cool. So he's like, what do you guys think about 37 signals? I'm like, sure, that sounds kind of cool. Let's, let's do that. The domain was available, and so we took it. You know, Again, back in the day, we didn't have any it's, – it's kind of fun to be in those positions where it doesn't matter. Um, you know, you're not worried about something or, you know, what are people going to think with a business name with numbers in front of it? Like, who cares? Just, we like it. Let's roll with it. So that's what we did. And anymore, correct me if I'm wrong here, but 37 Signals is the umbrella of sorts and you're more focused on the Basecamp product and your Hey.com product. Is that right? Yeah. Sorry. I got to plug in my computer here. Um, no worries. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah, yeah. 37 Signals is the, is the company. Sure. It's sort of the umbrella company that owns, well, it owns all the stuff we do, but Basecamp is a product line. Hey is a product line, but these are all owned by the company called 37 Signals, yes. Sure, and before we get into the philosophy of Basecamp and the philosophy of Hey, uh, tell me really what your philosophy of work is, because that's kind of how these two, two things sprung out of the ground from what I understand, just how we work and what work is meant to be and just breaking from the norms of traditional work. Go ahead and tell me more about what you think of work and how you've seen it transform. I mean, being in the internet for what, you said 95? Yeah, yeah, it's been a long time. <laughs> um, um, our, you know, our work is, our, our sort of philosophy is best described in, in two books that we've written. One's called Rework and one's called It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. Shape Up is another book we've written, which is much more specific to like our day-to-day -day method of working, but rework and it doesn't have to be crazy at work best describe how we see the world, which is quite a bit different than most companies in our industry specifically. So we believe in bootstrap companies, not raising outside money. We be we've believed in remote work since the beginning. So we're, we're a fully remote company, have been remote for many, many, many years. We used to have an office. We're kind of hybrid sort of, but have been working remotely since the beginning. Um, in fact, David, my business partner, he lived in Denmark. Uh, I'm in the U.S. So, you know, we've always been working between seven and nine hours apart, essentially. He lived in the U.S. for a little bit, but most of the time, uh, uh, and lately he's, he's moved back to Denmark. So we're, we're really used to working remotely. Um, we've tried to keep the company as small as we can in terms of the number of people who work here. We're actually at our biggest we've ever been, which is about 80 people. But, um, you know, we have over 100,000 customers and, you know, 80 people running the show. So it's we're a relatively small company with a, with a big customer base. 
Um, we don't really have meetings. We're not a big meetings culture at all. We try to have almost none, basically, and do most work asynchronously, um, which means you know you write something up and someone reads it when they have a chance, and they get back to you when they have a chance, versus constantly like trying to sync up schedules and have all these real time conversations that don't really need to happen. Um, we haven't done any traditional marketing really over the years. We've been very outspoken, writing books, writing blog posts, taking strong positions on the industry. And all of those things, and there's many more things, but those are some of the things that we've done that are quite a bit different than most in our industry. Our industry is focused primarily on rapid growth. We're not raising a bunch of outside money. We're not working ridiculous hours. We're not. We work 40-hour weeks. In fact, in the summer, we work 32-hour weeks. Um, we have a very generous salary program, profit-sharing program, sabbatical program. You know, uh, We try to make sure everyone has a full day to themselves. Uh, like a full eight-hour day to themselves with nothing in the way. No meetings, no red tape, no company bureaucracy getting in their way, but just full day to themselves, and they can go home at five. And it's kind of a really simple way to work, um, but it's not common these days. Definitely. Now, Jason, do you uh, follow or have you read any of Dr. Jordan Peterson's books at all? I have not read his books. I know who he is, but I have not read his books. So what, what called this to mind was he often talks about how human beings are amazing in the sense that they can have abstract action being thought. Um, and that's what I think is so cool, especially as I was preparing for this interview, learning more about what you all think of work, is that oftentimes, rather than meetings, you guys develop these very thorough, uh, these blog posts, these pitches, these um, just really concrete documents um, where you have to flesh out your ideas. And when I was reading that, I thought, man, Jordan Peterson, he would be all over this because that, in a sense, is abstract action as well. You're thinking you're having to think what you think before you ever deliver it to anyone else. Yeah. You know, one of the things that we do a lot is we 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 write we write externally to th share internally also. So we, we, we take points of view. We put positions out. We 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 we, we try to, to think these ideas out in public. A lot of companies are very um, tight in that they're they're afraid to say things, or they think that everything they do is proprietary and private. And and we we've never really been that way. We've just basically tried to share everything we know and write write books and sort of actually emulate chefs in the way that chefs write cookbooks. And but they're not afraid of someone like buying their cookbook and opening a restaurant next to them and putting them out of business. Like we're not afraid of someone reading our books and competing against us. It's fine if they do too. It doesn't really even matter. But it's more about sharing what we think, what we thought, what our experiences are, primarily because our point of view is is different. And I think it's very important to have different points of view that are out there versus the, the standard narrative in, in the tech world is like go big or go home, raise a bunch of money, lose a bunch of money. Um uh, just grab market share, do whatever you can to grow. Uh, and then a lot of businesses sort of speak the language of war. It's like they're capturing market share and dominating. And we're just, you know, we don't think that you have to do it that way. We're not out to beat anyone else. We're just out to do the best work we can. You know, we're not out to, to take anyone's customers. We're out to earn some customers. You know, it's just a very different point of view. Um, it's almost like a, a strangely like a pacifist point of view versus a, a you know, 
uh, a warring kind of mentality, which is what's kind of pretty common in the business industry or business world. So anyway, different points of view. Those ideas should be out there so people are exposed to them and not just exposed to the one way that's uh, kind of uh, you know shared in, in the tech industry. Sure. And what kind of benefits have you seen from sharing the recipe, as I've heard you call it in other interviews? What benefits have you seen to your organization from that simple philosophy? Well, um, the sharing is nice because um, people... <clears throat> When you when you teach or when you share without asking or expecting anything in, in return, I think people uh, tend to sort of hold you in higher regard versus if you're constantly trying to do things for some ulterior motive. Um, and certainly there's some some benefits to this also for us. Like it's great marketing. It's great exposure. Um you know, everyone now is into content marketing. We, you know, we, we've been writing stuff for years, never thought of it that way, but that's also what it is. So there's a lot of like practical benefits uh, in that way, but, but, but we don't do it. We, we don't have a strategy for doing that for a reason. Like we don't write posts and measure them and see which ones work better than others and write more of those. It's just not the way we are. We write what's on our mind. We share what's on our mind and collectively over a decade or two, we hope to put off put out enough material that um, is helpful for people. And then, of course, you know that that's good for business also. But it's not why we do it. It's it's do we do it because we want to share this stuff. We we want this stuff to be out there. We want a different point of view to be out there. But yeah, it's good for business as well. So I think that is helpful. It also just helps us clarify what we think, what we believe, and put it into words um, for ourselves as well as for others. It's always nice to have to explain something to somebody because then you can figure out if you really believe it, really understand it, really know it. So I think that that's always a helpful thing as well. So as someone who's written books, um, what, what book has been the most formative for you in your life? If you could pick uh, one. <clears throat> um, formative, I, I, I don't... I don't think there's been any like truly formative books. I think different in different points in my life, I'll read something that will, I, I feel like elevate me in some way, but it's not like there was one that changed everything kind of thing. Um, like I'm going to go run back here to get a book to hold it up for you. Just give, give me a second. Please, no worries. Thank you. So this book, which is a book about writing, it's called Several Short Sentences About Writing, is an extraordinarily good book on writing. And I, I love writing. And this is one of the best books I've ever writ or read on writing. And so I read this last year for the first time, and it's really just helped me, I think, become a better writer. Um, is it formative? I don't know. But was it important? I'm glad I read it. Yes. You know, so there's, there's books like this. There's, there's books on science. There's books on architecture. There's books on, actually, I don't read many business books, actually. I, I, I used to read business books and I, I, I have a hard time reading them now. Um, Why is so, that? Why do you have a hard time reading them? Most of them are too long and very repetitive. And uh, I feel like they're and I know why they're too long because we've been we've written books and publishers want you to write thick books because thick books sell. So like I I get it, but yeah. many of these books would be better off as a, as a, like a blog post or like a, you know a thirty page pamphlet basically instead of a three hundred page book. So I have a hard time making my way through all of them. I usually feel like I, I get the point halfway through, and so maybe I'll read half and that's it. 
Um, but I'm, I'm, you know, my, my interests vary. Um, um, so like, I, I just read all sorts of different things, but I tend not to read things like about my own industry, actually. That's one thing I try to avoid because I, I feel like it also makes you think a bit too much like everybody else. So I, I've tried to steer, steer clear from that. But yeah, I don't have a great answer specifically about a specific book. So on that note, is there a particular industry, field of study that has been uh, the most inspirational for your work? Yeah, I really like architecture a lot. Um, in architecture, you'd think like, what does it have to do with software development or whatever? But to me, it has a lot to do with it because architecture is about designing spaces. It's about um, how, how someone feels in a space. It's about, uh, you know, um, of course, providing shelter and fundamentals and whatnot. But it's also, I think, one of the great art forms, uh, uh, human art forms, which is actually creating in three dimensions, large scale things, that, that, that can inspire, that can change the lives of the people who are in them. Um, and there's material choices and there's the way things come together and there's proportion. There's all these classical details which don't directly relate to software, but in my mind, they, they do indirectly because like when, I, when I'm in a great piece of architecture, when I see a great piece of architecture, it helps me think about how to design great software. Like I go, what is great about this space? Like what is it about this space? And, 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 you know, th then I start to try to bring some of those ideas into software. Like, what is it about this feature? What is it about this screen that would make it feel more like a great building or a great space? So I, I kind of, it's, it's a bit abstract again, but I, I tend to, to draw from that furniture design is another thing, which is similar as well, where it's a materiality and proportion and, and, and feel you sit in a chair, like, how does that chair feel? Um, and, and how does the software feel is something I think about all the time. How does the screen feel? How does this flow or process feel? Um, so a lot of it is feel. And so the things that they have a lot of feel to them are things I think that, that really inspire me. Do you have a favorite architectural landmark? Um, I'd probably say um, th that I've been to. There's some that I have not been to that I'd, lo that I'd love to visit. Um, Taliesin. Um, which is Frank Lloyd Wright's um, um, sort of his home in Spring Green, Wisconsin. There's actually one in Wisconsin. There's one in in um, in Arizona in Temp or uh, Scottsdale, but the one in Wisconsin was his family home um, for 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 many years, um, and it's an extraordinary piece of design and experimentation. It's in on a beautiful few hundred acre you know rolling hills property it's an extraordinary place for a million different reasons and i just love being there i love being in it i love looking at it i love being near it um it's special so that's i think the thing that comes to mind but there's other places things like um the campus of um cranbrook university which is in um, michigan i forget which town it's in but the campus was designed by uh, Saarinen and, and a few other architects have contributed. And it's just like this wonderfully proportioned place with multiple buildings and multiple spaces. And just there's some there's some feel you get when something is just right. And and I find architecture for me is it, architecture, nature, nature is the other thing, just like being out anywhere in nature does it for me as well. I, I love it. Um, those two things man-made stuff and, and nature-made stuff are the things that I really enjoy when it comes to spaces. That's yeah. awesome. Yep. So 
taking somewhat of a pivot here, talking about how architecture makes a person feel and how software makes a person feel, tell the audience about Basecamp. And for those who you know won't be Googling it anytime soon, kind of paint a picture of what it's supposed to do. Yeah, so Basecamp, um, at, at the heart of Basecamp, Basecamp is a project management tool. It helps people, teams, um, keep track of all the work that needs to happen on any given project. Let's say you're building a house, right? Well, you've got blueprints to keep track of. You've got feedback from the client. You've got proposed designs. You've got deadlines. You've got meetings. You've got notes, all the different things. And you need a central place for all those people in all those different roles to come together and have one spot where the official stuff lives. Many people would do that like via email or they'd throw Google Docs around or they'd chat about something here and track something in some other software and talk about it on the phone. Like problem with all that is that it's scattered and there's no definitive place. Like where is the latest version of this? Where's the official decision about that? When is this supposed to happen? Who said what about that? Who approved this and who approved that? That all needs to live in one place where everyone sees the same stuff so everyone's on the same page. That's essentially what Basecamp is. So Basecamp has to-dos and scheduling and Kanban for tracking process flows and um, message board and chat and file storage and all the things are all centralized in one place so everyone has the same access to everything. And that's essentially what it's for. It's used by uh, millions of people actually in in pretty much every industry uh, in, on almost every in every country around the world. It started out just basically built for us, which was, you know, we were a, project, a, a web design design company. And so other web design companies started using it initially. But over the years, it sort of spread into all the different corners of the world and different industries. So it's, it's great. And the reason why is because everyone's the same. Like, uh, it doesn't matter if you're a web designer, an architect, a, a wedding planner, um, uh, 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 a national park. Well, I, oh, it's the, I'm, there, there's this one group of people using Basecamp to, to uh, manage a national forest. Um, so like, it doesn't matter like what it is if you're a manufacturer of toys or clothes or it's like, you're just people and you got stuff and you need to keep track of it. And some of it's really important and you need to make sure everyone knows what's going on. And there needs to be a place to get up to speed. Like that's kind of what, what Basecamp is. So was there any particular industry that was an early adopter? Of Basecamp? Um, well, so there's there's um, design firms. So it started out creative services, and that kind of spread into all the different kinds of creative services. Um, then it was actually interesting. One of the one of the early adopters were um, churches, synagogues, religious institutions, people that had had like a congregation, and they needed to communicate to this congregation and have a collection of things that were going on decisions that were made and then it also sort of spread to like boards of directors and anyone running running an organization that wasn't necessarily day-to-day but had to have oversight over it and they needed again a place to have these discussions and meetings and minute note or meeting minutes and 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 timelines and, it, and so that kind of thing it just kind of kept going and going and going became quite big and still is in publishing manufacturing anything where there's process and there's flows, but still the, the sort of the real heart of it is the creative services industries. Uh, and it, it could be print design, web design, event planning, you know, um, artists, uh, you know, that, that sort of world is, is, is very big. Um, software development is very big for us still. So as you guys went through all this growth, was there ever that temptation to 
over hire to make your organization bigger than it was on paper kind of thing? Because you guys are just at 80 employees for having, what'd you say, 100,000 people using Basecamp? 100,000 customers, and those customers have, have users. Yeah. Uh, this is across both Basecamp and Hey. We have another product called okay. Hey, which is an email service. Yeah, so we've got lots of people using our stuff. Um, well, not really. I mean, we've always been, this, we're the biggest we've ever been right now, which is about 80 or I think 82 maybe is where we're at. Um, and um, we've just always tried to grow. Basically, we, we, we say hire when it hurts. Don't hire, um, hire to, to alleviate pain, not to re remove the anticipation of it, basically, which is like, be careful because it's very easy if you have the revenue, even if you don't, I guess if you've raised money and you're asked to hire a bunch of people to just keep hiring and then get over your skis and, and now you're in the red and you've got too many people and it's a big cost center. And, and the, the tendency is to think the more people we have, the faster we can move and the more we can do and not necessarily actually ends up slowing you down in many ways. So we've always just had a really natural discipline around not having more people than we need um, and making sure that that actually we stretch a bit before we, we, we alleviate the, uh, the stretch. Um, and, and I think it's just, it's a good disciplined approach, even though there's moments when you, you wish you had another person or two or three, but I think it's still better, um, to learn how to live without, uh, what you think you need than to have more than you, than you really need. Because, uh, if you, if you begin to have more than you need all the time in everything that you do, um, you, you begin to build some bad habits. Uh, and I think during the lean times, the tricky times, times like now, right, where interest rates are high and the economy is a little bit shaky and more than a little bit shaky and stuff. A lot of these companies, a lot of our competitors, in fact, are really, really, really hurting because they've gotten way too big. They've raised too much money. They haven't practiced making money. They've been losing money, hundreds of millions of dollars um, annually. And now there's some austerity coming at them and they're not used to it. They don't know how to deal with it. They think they need... 4,000 people working at their company or 800 people or 900 people. And, um, you know, it might be that they could probably get by with 250, but they're just, they don't know how. Um, and so it gets, becomes very painful and very difficult. So I'd rather just be on the, on the small side than the big side there. One of my favorite quotes, to be content with little is hard. To be content with much is impossible. Uh, I can't remember who said it, but <laughs> I've always one. enjoyed yeah. it. That's a good um, one. So, so let's let's talk about that that raising money, that making money, because you guys pride yourself on the fact that you you've bootstrapped the whole way. There's been no venture capitalist or anything like that. Tell us more about that, why that was such a priority and how it's kind of molded your culture. Yeah, and just for full disclosure, um, we took money once, but not into the company. So David and I, David's my business partner, we sold a piece of our own shares actually to Jeff Bezos from Amazon. He bought a small piece of, of our shares, but um, zero pennies have ever gone into the business from the outside world other than customer revenue. So I just want to be totally above board on that. Um, did you ask why? Remind me of the question. Yeah, like why, yeah. why did you do it? Why was it such a priority? Because yeah. once again, the temptation to just flood a business with cash to do more, to do greater yeah. things. We didn't want the strings that come attached to that money. I mean, it's you don't just get money. No one's just giving you money. <laughs> I mean, they, they, they essentially give you money, uh, but, or and, you know, and we didn't want the but or the and. 
we, we just wanted to generate, you know, our own revenue and, and, and do with it what we felt like we should do. So um, if you raise a bunch of money, you're expected to spend a bunch of money. You're expected to grow rapidly. You're expected to do a whole bunch of things that we didn't want to do. We didn't want to grow out of control. We wanted to grow in control and to grow in control, uh, having, you know, all of a sudden an influx of $6 million in the bank is not going to help you grow in control. You're going to hire more people than you need. You're going to spend more money in marketing than you should. You're going to get sloppy with, with your spending because that's what you do. Um, and we just, that's just not our approach to business. It's not how we want to be. It's not what we think is healthy. Um, and, but, but most, most of all, David and I are fiercely independent and, um, we just don't want to answer to anybody other than our, ourselves and our customers and our employees. That's it. Like that's enough to answer to. That's, that's, that's hard enough than to have someone breathing down your neck who's not really involved in the business but gave you a bunch of money so they have a huge say and they expect you to do some, something in a certain period of time so they can sell the business or, 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 or go public or have some liquidity event. We, we want to be in business for a long time. We don't want to get out of business either. And when you take money from the outside, you're typically on a time scale of five to seven years, um, which is essentially kind of what a fund typically runs at. Not always, but... and. And then like you, what if you're just really enjoying it and you want to keep running your business? You kind of can't really, you've got to be acquired, sell or go public. And what if we didn't want to do that? And then you're stuck behind this, this whole thing that you've really enjoyed building this business. And now you have to change it for someone else. Not interested. We're not interested in doing that. So that's why we, we've, we've gone our own way. And it's admirable too. Well, I um, appreciate that. Thank you. You bet. You bet. Yeah. Tell me more, though. You, you mentioned Jeff Bezos. I mean, he was an early investor in your company, however many years ago you said. Um, is there anything specific you've learned from him? I mean, he's a successful entrepreneur and businessman. Is there anything you've learned from him to do or not do? Yeah. I, so one of the things that Jeff taught us early on was... Um, Give us a time frame of how early on. Are we talking early yeah, so thousands or... Uh, yeah, he he bought a piece in 2006. It was okay. six or seven. I think it was 2006. So um, we, we haven't talked to him in a while. I think we talked to him maybe a year ago and hasn't we, we haven't talked that much in recent years. But it, way back in the day when we first took money, we would talk a couple times a year. And one of the, one of the things, the best piece of advice he ever gave us was um, this idea that um, you should focus on the things in your business that don't change. So... Most companies are focused on all the change. They're, they're, they're chasing the shiny new thing. They're change, 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 change. And he says, like, there's things that change, and you should pay attention to that. And you should innovate, and you should do all those things. But don't lose sight of the basic things that will not change. And here's an example to get concrete. He said, look, people aren't going to wake up in 10 years and say, I wish Amazon's prices were higher. So we can invest in keeping our prices low now. And the more we invest in that now, the more it's going to pay off in the future. We're going to keep investing in that. That's not going to go out of style. People aren't going to wake up in 10 years from now and say, I wish it took longer to get packages from Amazon. So they're going to invest now, and this is way back then, and before, before they had Prime and before they had um, distribution centers. But you can see they invested heavily in that to, to, to make overnight shipping a reality for basically everything and, you know, how that went pretty well for them. Um, people weren't going to wake up in 10 years and say like, I wish Amazon's selection was worse or, 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 or their customer service was worse or any of those things. So figure out the fundamentals of the business 
and invest in those and that'll always pay off versus, and you still want to invest in some new ideas too, some things that may not, of course, because you never really know what things are going to do, but don't lose sight of the fundamental basics that are always going to be paying off for you. So I thought, I think that was, that was a really good collection of practical advice uh, that, that I think made an impression on us and uh, continues to do so to this day. I'd like to get your thoughts on this because, you know, living in Omaha, I've read a lot about Warren Buffett and he often echoes a similar sentiment. Like, yeah. don't, don't concern yourself with all the changing vicissitudes, if you will, but will people still chew gum in 10 years? That's a question you need to ask yourself. Um, so do you, do you think there's a similarity, a commonality between the, those philosophies? Yes. Um, so, uh, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, huge fans of, of, of their approach and their general way of being like all, you know, um, David and I are, are, are fans of that, like just fundamental, like what, what are the fundamentals? What makes sense here? Business 101, make more money than you spend. Don't get ahead of yourself. Don't put the company at risk. You can take risks, but don't put the company at risk. You know, if you don't understand it, don't do it. Like some, all the basic fundamental, and like Munger's full of the, the, you know, the real zinger one-liners that are just like, so just deeply steeped in practical knowledge. Like we love that kind of stuff. So I'd say we're much closer to, to Buffett and Munger um, than, than, you know, any other sort of, you know, uh, I don't know, business approaches. So just basic business, you know, don't, don't, don't blow your money on stupid shit, <laughs> basically, you know, that kind of Amen. thing, you know? Yeah. Gosh, one of my favorite Munger quotes, I think he said, a man who's unwilling to change his ideas is like a one-legged man in an ass kicking contest. Um, I, I think that's brilliant. I remember I read it in a book and I underlined it three times, I think. Um, yeah, that's a great one. Yeah, it's, it's great. Uh, but before we zip past it, cause I don't want to, um, let's talk about, Hey, cause you told us about Basecamp. Tell us about, Hey, the philosophy behind, Hey, how that came about all of that. Yeah, sure. So, Hey, is an email service we launched, um, a couple years ago. And by email service, I mean like a full email service where you, you get a hey.com email address. It's not something that like lives on top of Gmail. It's, it's a full-blown vertical email thing. So um, email we think is a treasure and it had been neglected for many, many, many years. And the last time email was actually interesting was like, well, now it's been 17 or 18 years since Gmail launched. I remember when Gmail launched Google's email platform and it was awesome. And then it sort of just, you know, got a little bit better, but kind of stagnant. And, you know, we're big fans of email because email is asynchronous and you can think about things and write it, write it down. It doesn't get in your way as much as, as, as chat might, you know. And so we, we just started getting really frustrated with like, email could be so much better. Like what, why? Like, and we started thinking about what are the things that are wrong with it? Um, and there was about 25 things that, that we, we felt were wrong with it. And I'll give you a few examples. And, and we solved all those problems in Hey. Um, so number one, um, email used to be amazing because the only people who could email you are people who had your email address. And way back when, you only gave your email address out to a few people or people you knew. Now, of course, every bot system, whatever, your email address has been sold and bought a million times, it's everywhere. So you no longer have control over who can get in touch with you. So Hey gives you that control. 
back. So the first time somebody ever emails you to your new hey.com email address, H-E-Y.com, you get to screen them in or out. You get to decide, do you want to hear from this person ever? Yes or no? If no, if you say no, they can email you a thousand times, you'll never hear from them again. So you get to have control over who can land in what we call the M box, not the in, but the M, I am, meaning important. You get to control who takes a bit of your time and attention. You get to control who you see. And so that's where it begins, is controlling who can get in touch with you. And once you start to do that, you start to get your time back. And you're not dealing with people you don't want to hear from. You're not dealing with things you don't want to deal with. You're dealing with people you want to hear from and things you want to hear about. From there, there's all these workflows that people do with email. Um, so example, in Gmail, you might read an email, you might leave it in your inbox, you know you need to get back to the person later, so you maybe star it or mark it unread, even though you've read it, you mark it unread, so you don't forget, so it's bold and you know, I'll get to it. Like, like these, are, these are these hacks that people do, and we're like, what? there should be no hacks. There's actual workflows in Hey around this. So for example, if you get an email, and you want to, you know, you need to get back to someone later, but you don't have time right now. You mark it as reply later. When you mark it as reply later, it goes into this little pile, like a little physical visual pile at the bottom of your screen. It piles up during the day, and maybe at the end of the day, four o'clock, whatever, you you click on that pile. It opens up the whole pile, stacks every email on top of each other, all open with reply boxes next to each one of them, and lets you reply to people all at once. Um, so you can go into like reply mode, like, okay, it's the end of the day. I've marked these 22 emails as reply later. Now let me reply to people one after the other and knock them down without having to go and see all the other stuff in my inbox without having to hack does unread for real or unread, not for real. Just so I remember to deal with it later. It's just a, a distinct, clear workflow. We have another one for set aside for things like you open your mail, physical mail. You make some stacks like uh, I need to pay this bill and this bill and this this is something I need and there's a catalog like people make stacks of things so so hey actually has physical stacks of things and you can put things into stacks so you can see them and you can deal with them in a spatial way which is how people really think about the world um, versus just like all these hacks of flagging and unreading and starring and whatever which is not really how you'd actually think about the world if it was physical um, there's a bunch of little things like that, but all added up. Like for example, another thing, real quick. Um, hey, has this feature called clips. And how many times have you looked at an email? Maybe it's a thread of 12 emails. And there's one thing in the email you need to remember. And so um, you're like, I've got this thread of 12 emails. And there's the, the eighth email has this account number I'm going to need later or whatever, right? And so you're like, um, I'll star the thread maybe and like i'll maybe remember why later um, with hey you can select any text in any email and save that as a clip and it just takes that little piece and puts it somewhere else in this place called my clips and now you can have a list of all the things you've clipped from emails so you don't need to go back to threads and dig for things you can just go oh there's that thing i needed like all these little things that we found ourselves doing in email we try to solve them all with hey and, and um, it's been a a pretty big hit now it costs 100 bucks a year which is um, something people aren't used to typically um, with email because most people think it should be free. And it's not really free. Email is not really free. Gmail is not free. They mine your data. They look at every email. They're selling you ads. They're using that data for all sorts of other reasons. So you know, we decided, you know, we don't want to do that. We're not going to do that. We don't look at your email. We don't sell ads. We don't mine your emails. We don't look through your emails, nothing like that. There's no automated systems looking through anything. 
pays hundred bucks a year. It's all yours. It's private. We don't have we don't look at it systematically or anything. Um, don't sell ads against it. And so you know we've had tens of thousands of people decide that that's worth it for them, which has been a really big hit so far. So we're very excited about Hey. That's awesome. Yeah. Tell me though, Jason, talking about Google, what what are your thoughts on big tech generally? Simply because you know in 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 the news cycle, it seems like they're dragged upon yet. We all use their services. We're all well aware of how much more connected the world is, uh, virtually connected the world is. But what do you think, just by and large, with big tech? Where do you applaud them? Where do you really think they're going astray? Well, I mean, so there's there's a, a number of good things and a number of bad things. Um, uh, some of the things they built, like Google, since we're talking about Google, Google's a phenomenal service. Like, yeah truly literally phenomenal thing world changing world changing i mean google maps redefine now there's other people doing maps but when google maps came out and it's since it's just it's extraordinarily good youtube is an extraordinarily good platform for a lot of different things um google search engines extraordinary like they're they're very 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 good at these things and we all use them all the time to find things or use DuckDuckGo or some other service as well but these are all big companies that have the ability to do things that um, small companies simply cannot do. Apple's another example. It's, it's easy to not like some things Apple does with the App Store and whatever, but really it's an extraordinary company that's made extraordinarily, incredibly well-built products and pushed the industry forward and pushed the world forward in a bunch of ways. Like Lots to say. Amazon, you know, it's nice to be able to get pretty much anything tomorrow if you need it. Like, incredible. And Amazon Web Services, all these things, right? The, the thing is, is that... Um, these companies, as tends to happen, um, tend to use their powers in monopolistic ways or push out small competitors or um, make competing incredibly hard or they become gatekeepers or they use a lot of, they, because they have so much personal information on people, they can sell targeted advertising uh, in ways that you would not have wanted your information to be used. There's all that stuff. Um, and, and so we have a lot of, we have a lot of concerns with, with, with all of the bad side of the monopolistic side of it, the gatekeepers side of it, the, um, you know, the, just the general power wielding. Um, but technologically, obviously hugely impressive and they're providing services that small companies cannot. Um, so, you know, you have to give them, give them plenty of props for that, but it's just a shame that, um, that, that, that as tends to happen, power goes, to, to the head and, and companies end up using things and it gets concentrated and you only have a few options. And this is true with, with platforms and, and all sorts of things, especially now there's like a few companies that control the internet, you know, if for whatever reason, you know, you get kicked off a few of these, like you're effectively silenced and it's very hard, you know, for, for people. I mean, this is a, a fringe issue, but it still points to the fact that a few companies have extraordinary amounts of power. And whenever that happens in any industry, it's typically a bad thing. It's just been proven out in history that that's kind of a bad thing. So that's what's happening right now in tech. So I'm, I'm not a big fan of that, but I do appreciate the things that they make. Do you think it's up to elected officials to, to take care of that gatekeeper aspect? Or do you think it should be up to the market system to let it do what it does? Well, I think you're going to need both because the market system can't do some things anymore because the, the powers is so concentrated and so great that like for example just take the apple app store right like you can't you're not allowed to open 
another app store uh, to compete with Apple. You're not allowed to distribute your own uh, iOS applications your own way. Like you simply cannot do that. So the market cannot correct for that. Um, you know, that, that's a big problem. Or when one company is the, like, the primary source for advertising dollars or, or, or the place where most people go to find things. Like it's very, very, very hard to compete in, in the advertising world when, when there's a few outlets that control pretty much all the eyeballs. You know, it's, it's very difficult to do that. And it's not just that it, difficult is okay sometimes, right? Like things can be hard to compete, but the app store is a great example of like, you're not even allowed to flat out can't. Um, and so I think that's the kind of, those are the cases where I think uh, elected officials need to, to get involved um, and, and um, you know, soften up some of those rules and put other more stringent rules in place. I, I don't know exactly. I mean, I can't go through each case and explain like where, but I think it's gonna have to be a combination of things. Um, and, um, and, you know, I think, I think Europe's sort of taken the lead on some of the stuff in some ways, um, privacy, especially, and, uh, you know, the market didn't have any control over privacy. Um, people didn't ha couldn't do anything about privacy. Governments had to get involved and say, look, people have a right. We're going to establish a right to certain degrees of privacy, online privacy, because um, companies weren't doing it and people couldn't do it themselves. So I think in some cases you need, you need that. Yeah. Yeah. What what thoughts do you have on Elon taking over Twitter? Uh, I, I <laughs> it's been a bit of a spectacle. Um, I, I'm a, a very mixed opinion. Uh, really? Tell me more. Yeah. So um, I find it fascinating, purely from an organizational leadership standpoint. I find it fascinating to to see such quick decisions being made at such a large company by such a new owner or CEO and to make them out in the open, regardless of what they are. I'm not actually looking at the substance of them when I, when I talk about this. I'm talking about just like the sheer um, speed at which things are changing is very interesting. And you rarely ever see that kind of thing play out in public. So I find that to be particularly interesting. Um, I think that... Um, Twitter, Twitter was not in a good place before, either. Um, it, I don't know if it's it, it. To me, it's in a transitional place. I, I wouldn't judge it as it is right this moment. I'm curious about where it ends up a year from now. I think it's too soon to figure out whether or not this is going to pan out or not. Um, so I'm, I'm again, I'm, I'm paying more attention to the, the, the decision making aspect, which I find to be fascinating. Um, I think the, the whiplashing is not healthy uh, for a platform and for its the people on the platform. I think people want some degree of sense of, of, of stability to know, and you're seeing this with advertisers, and this is not helping, of course, on advertisers. like They want advertisers, especially who, who care about the brand, they want to make sure they're on a place where they feel like it's in control. Um, so, so that's really, I think Elon's really hurt the, the, the platform in terms of its its um, interest to advertising and, and for advertisers for a number of reasons, but it's um, it's fascinating. I think um, here's the thing: like I think it's hard to bet against Elon Musk. Um, he is an unusual person who has very unusual points of view on how to run a business. Um, the risks he's willing to take are at a different level than most people understand. 
and are comfortable with. So when I see them making some of these decisions, I don't know, again, I don't know how they're going to pan out. Um, I don't tend to judge them in, in the moment because I don't think you really can necessarily. But I think his risk tolerance and his outlook is just different than the average person and not even the average person, even almost everybody. And so it's easy to judge decisions and moves uh, with, with through your lens and not understand what someone's doing. Um, but if you look at it through their lens, I could see him saying, this place needs to change radically or it's not going to survive. And I'm not going to do that slowly because we don't have time. And I want to kind of rip off the Band-Aid and make, make a bunch of changes and let this thing sink or swim based on that, like all within the next six months. I think it's a very interesting strategy and it's just interesting to see play out. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think that the, the verdict or the jury is out. It's going to take a while to see how it really pans out. Um, but I, I think it's fascinating to watch regardless of what actually ends up happening. I think seeing this happening is very interesting. What's your take? My take? Yeah. Well, I read Elon Musk's book, um, gosh, his biography by Ashley Vance four years ago. And to your point, I, I always told people, they said, John, what do you think of Tesla stock? And I said, hell, I don't know. But I'll say this. You can bet against Tesla stock, but don't bet against Elon Musk. Yeah. I mean, there's, to your point, there's just something about him where he's on a different level entirely. Um, and so and to, to add to that, it doesn't make him immune from screwing up. Like he could, yeah. this could crash and burn. Like there seems to be an equal chance here of crash and burn or like reboot. Like, I don't know where this is going to go. And so I don't want to like, I don't want to idolize him and fawn over him. That's not my perspective yeah. on this at all. Right. I do think though that um, he's obviously an extraordinary person um, an extraordinary uh, he's, he's led to extraordinary companies so far or three really, if you go back to like PayPal way back, you, I don't know if you actually led that technically, but it was involved, but, but SpaceX and, uh, and Tesla like cannot argue with the impact those have had on their own respective industries. So I tend to give people like that the benefit of the doubt. It's hard to do anything well. And he's come out so far with two massive world changing industry changing things like incredibly hard things to do. So when I look at like what he's doing with Twitter, it's like, this seems a lot easier in some respects, but maybe a lot harder in other respects. I don't know, but I'm really curious to see how it pans out given the fact that he's, he's gone against the odds in these other places and made it work. So let's, let's see what happens. We will see. There's no yeah. doubt about that. Um, but, but on a lighter note, Jason, for, for those who are listening, thinking about, you know, what life is like in the C-suite, so to say, walk us through your day. What's it like to be a CEO of a company? What tasks are you required to do? What things do you have to focus on over the long term? Just kind of walk us through your routine, if you will. Yeah, it, it's mine is different every day. So I'm not I'm not a routine style person necessarily. Um, but what I what I tend to do is so in, in Basecamp we have this feature called automatic check-ins. And automatic check-ins um, can ask the team certain questions every day, every week, every two weeks, whatever it is, on an automatic basis. And one of the things we ask every day is, what'd you work on today? And once a week we ask, what'd you, what do you plan on working on this week? So every morning I kind of browse the what'd you do today? And that's would be from the previous day. Just to kind of get up to speed on like what's going on across the company, roughly, you know? 
it just and then there's some things that stand out that I might dig into because I'm curious about it or I might have a point of view about it or I might disagree with it or I might agree with it, whatever it is. But that's a great way for me to get a sense of like what's what's generally happening right now because I can't pay attention to everything. So what's, how, how are people describing what they've been doing? So that's kind of where it starts for me. And then it sort of veers off into whatever I see there that might be interesting for me where I feel like I can have an impact or, or have a point of view or whatever. Um, I'll do a lot of writing during the days. Right now we're working on a brand new product we just started on. So I'm thinking a lot about that and doing a lot of sketching and a lot of thinking and exploring. So that's, but that's not something I'm usually doing because we don't start new products all the time, every few years maybe. So we just started like a few weeks ago. So I'm really in that mode right now. We're looking at um, uh, experimenting with some more pricing uh, experiments for Basecamp. Um, so uh, I'm thinking a lot about pricing and, and sort of considering different angles on that. Um, I just got off a call before I was talking to you with David and Elaine. Elaine's our COO, talking about some pricing stuff, talking about some business stuff. We talk once a week uh, at the three of us, once a week. Um, and so, you know, we just did that today. Um, but, but my days are, are, are basically full of wh where can I be useful? Uh, and what should I stay out of is a big part of it too, because what I've realized over the years is that not only, you know, I, I'm the CEO here, but I'm also, I, I started the company. And, and so the founder's word weighs a ton is the way I put it. Like you have to be very careful with what you say, where you say it internally, because it can change the dynamic in a way that you didn't intend. Um, if you just throw in some feedback here and there, like drive by feedback on something, you know, and you own the place, someone could think this is incredibly important. The owner chimed in and it's like, it wasn't actually important. I just thought, uh, here's just a thing I thought about, you know, but you've got to be very careful about that. So I'm also careful staying out of things. Um, so, so my day is about staying out of things, jumping into the right things, staying away from the wrong things, um, not, not putting uh, my finger on, on, on the, on the scale where it shouldn't be, um, dreaming up stuff that's brand new sometimes, other times come, kind of figuring out what we're going to be working on over the next six weeks with, with new feature development, uh, catching up with certain people, doing a lot of writing. It's, it's a very much a, a flow kind of situation depending on, on where I'm needed. But I do start my mornings looking at like what happened yesterday. That kind of tends to, to sort of set the day in motion. Sure, sure. That makes that But I'm makes not sense. a scheduled, I'm not a scheduled, it's not like from 11 to 12 I do this and from 12 to 1 I do this and I block this part off my schedule. We don't have... That's not the way I work. It's more of kind of a, I'm kind of just doing this because that's kind of how it feels. You just kind of flow back and forth. Sure. Yeah. No, that, I get it. Um, one, one question, this is probably my last question for you, Jason. We're running short sure. on time here. But um, tell me how you balance the demands of a work life and a family life. Because I believe from what I've read and understood, you're married, have a couple kids. How does that all you know, work out? It's um, it's something you you have to do, I think, um, if you want to keep your marriage and, and see your kids, you know. Um, so um, a big part of it for us is the way we just work, which is we work forty hours a week as a company. So I mean, each person does roughly forty hours a week. So we yeah, have same work hours. By each person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> each person. So so. Uh, we have same work hours. You know, I start my day at the eight ish. I'm you know done by five ish. You know, uh, take some breaks during the day, take a walk, whatever it is. Like sometimes I'll put an extra hour like at night after the kids go to bed 
if I kind of took some extra time off during the day or I'm sort of in a zone where I feel like I'm productive or something like that. But for the most part, like I don't work excessive hours. I, I, I work 40 hour weeks. I don't travel for work. I used to do a lot of traveling for work where I'd speak and I don't do that anymore at all. So I basically don't do business. I don't have any business travel. Um, that's one of the things that can really make it hard on family life is when you're like, you know, always gone. So I'm always around during my days though I'm working and then I'm, I'm done. I'm done at five and we have dinner and we hang out and all the things and in the morning I see the kids and all that stuff on the weekends I don't work. So, you know, I see, I see the kids and we're with the family and the whole thing. So like, you know, um, I think the key is, is like, you simply cannot let work dominate your, your days. And if you don't, there's plenty of time for everything. The way we tend to think about it is like, we call it eight, 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 eight hours of work, eight hours of sleep, eight hours of you know life or whatever, uh, whatever you want to call the rest of it. You know, it's all life, of course, but that's a pretty good balance. And, and maintaining that is, is really important. Um, I, I know far too many CEOs, founders, entrepreneurs who are putting the 60, 70, 80 hour weeks nonstop. Um, and then what ends up happening is they do it when they're young and they think that when they get a bit older, they cannot do that. Problem is, is that they're tuned to do that now. That's just how they are. That's what they think they need to do. That's what they've gotten good at doing. And then it becomes a real problem when you're in your 30s or 40s or something like that, right? So uh, I've, I've somehow maintained that discipline from early on where I, you know, basically 40 hours is kind of enough. It's more than enough. Maybe maybe I used to do 50 here and there, right? But it's, it, it's reasonable. And so that, that's how you do it. Like you, you can only do it by, by literally not working. <laughs> Otherwise, you'll work will consume everything. Which in the tech world seems so counterintuitive in a go, go, go kind of environment. Um, yes. I mean, it's basically yeah. what happens. Yeah. And, and, and if, if, if you don't, if you don't stop that early, you're, you're in trouble, you know? Yeah. You're all too right. Anyway, Jason, I want to thank you for giving me so much of your time today. I really appreciate it. Give the folks who are listening an idea of where they can learn more about you Basecamp, hey, those books you mentioned, give it, give us all of it. Sure. So, uh, basecamp.com, hey.com, that's h e y.com, 37signals.com, that's where you can get the big overarching philosophy. And if you go to 37signals.com/books, you can read some of the books we've written. Um, I'm on Twitter at, at Jason Freed, F R I E D. You can find me on LinkedIn as well. And the other thing I would say is I also have a um, email newsletter. It's at world.hey.com slash Jason. Um, this book, I'll, maybe I'll email you a few of the other books I like, but this, this is a book. Um, there's a number of other books that, that I dig. Actually, one of Charlie Munger's books is one of my favorite books, the uh, Something Almanac. I forget what it's called. Um, oh, um, Poor Richard's Almanac. Is that it? That's, is, that, is that what it is? I, I, well, it's one ben of them. Franklin might have done that one, but they did Poor... They did Poor Charlie's Almanac several years ago. That nice blue covered book. Yeah, that might have been it. Okay. Yeah. But there's another one, actually, another book that someone else put together of Charlie Munger's writings and stuff. I'll have to find it. It's a wonderful okay. book. There's a few other ones too. I'll send I'll send you a link. You can link up some of those too. But um, yeah, that's basically that's basically us. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Jason, thank you so, so much. This was a true treat for me. And yeah, just I, I'm a big fan of Basecamp, big fan well, of Hay, and I'm excited to see what you guys do down the road. So thanks well, again. Thanks. It was fun talking, John. Thank you. Take care. You bet. Take care. All right. See ya. 
Whether you allowed us to keep you company on your ride home from the office, during your workout, or as you were getting ready for the day, I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this conversation. Be sure to subscribe and follow CEO Sitdowns on whatever podcast platform you use, and I'd really appreciate it if you could leave a review, as it helps others find the podcast in the future. And if today's episode called to mind a friend or a family member who you think would really enjoy today's conversation, go ahead and share this episode with them. I'd certainly appreciate it, and hopefully they will too. Thanks again for listening, and may you have a pleasant day wherever you may be. Thank you.